0: Awesome. I I'm so impressed that our kids are learning. They're listening well. They're growing in these same things that all the rest of us are. So that was that was tremendous. Let's open our Bibles to the Book of Acts, please. The Book of Acts. A T E A C T S. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are lots of Bibles underneath a chair nearby. Just pull one out. Turn to page 1160. 1160, that's where we're going to be today. This this message today is not a part of any series. As Michael just pointed out, we've just ended a series on the 2020 vision. Next week, Matt's going to begin a series on the book of Mark. It's going to take us for a long time, a very exhaustive study of the book of Mark. And I thought that when Matt asked me to preach today, I thought, what could I address that would pull Uh, together, almost like sandwich these two things that we've been learning together and say something that must be done if any of it is going to count. And I believe it's the topic of prayer, as Michael just pointed out. So in Acts chapter four, uh, we're going to look at a prayer that was prayed by the early Christians. The book of Acts is a is the story of the birth of the early church after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And um, in this chapter, we're going to see that the church that was gathered in this house, I I suppose it was, was a praying group of people. They prayed a lot. Now, let me give you a a real quick sense of the context because we're going to just dive into this chapter here without a lot of preparation. Um, In the uh, previous chapter, chapter 3 of Acts, You can even see, if you're looking at your Bible, the same uh, version I have, you can see the headings and pretty much tell what's going on. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John healed a man who had been crippled from birth. And uh, then after that, they proceeded to preach the gospel. And it drew such a huge crowd that thousands of people came to faith. And this, of course, troubled the religious establishment and so the priests and the rulers of the Jewish uh, authorities brought Peter and John in, uh, into them. They, they gave them an inquisition, as it were. They questioned them about what they were doing, why they were doing it, who they were. They noted that they were just common, uneducated men. And uh, they said, you can't be doing this. You're, 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 you're attracting way too much attention. It's troubling the city. They were troubled. And so they threw them in jail for uh, the, the night. And then brought them back again the next morning. And you'll notice that uh, the early part of chapter 4 says that Peter and John stood before the council. And the council interrogated them. And they basically decided that because the people were so rallying around Peter and John and the apostles, they didn't want to punish them, so they threatened them. They, say, they said, you can't be doing this. They warned them. I suppose they sort of implied that if you keep doing this, you're going to get in bigger trouble. And uh, so when we come to our text today, which begins in verse 23, Peter and John have been released from custody and now they come back to their friends, the uh, rest of the Christian group that they hung out with. So let me begin reading in verse 23 and read down through verse 31 of Acts chapter 4. Listen to God's word. When they, that is Peter and John, were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, Indeed. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the fact that you've given us a book, a book we can read, a book that reveals what we need to know about you and the good news about Jesus, your Son. And as we study it together today, we pray, oh God, that your Holy Spirit will come and work in our hearts and so move at a deep level of our hearts that we will be changed more and more into the very likeness of Christ. We ask this for your sake and for your glory. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, many of you were here a few weeks ago, I suppose, when in mid-September, I preached a sermon from Psalm 77. And in that sermon, I said something that I said might sound heretical to some of you, and that was that sometimes prayer does not change things. Do you remember that? And I went on to explain what I meant. I meant that uh, sometimes our circumstances don't change around us simply because we pray that what God is often doing through our circumstances is inviting us to remember what he's done in the past. And on for, by virtue of remembering what he's done in the past, we gain courage and hope and uh, faith for the future. So sometimes I said, prayer is not meant to change things. Instead, it changes us. Well, today, I want to give you sort of a part two because if I left it at that, you would not have the full picture on prayer. Because today what I want us to see from Acts chapter 4 is that sometimes prayer does change things. Sometimes prayer does change things. I love how John Piper put it. John Piper is a a minister that many of us uh, appreciate up in Minnesota. He put it this way. He said, things happen when God's people pray that will not happen if they do not pray. Now I know there's a mystery about that because we believe that God does whatever He wants to do. But I believe Piper had it right. I believe that's the teaching of the Scriptures that things happen when God's people pray that will not happen if they do not pray. The way I would put it is that God moves His redemptive program along in response to the fervent, faithful prayers of His redeemed people. I'll say that again, that God moves forward His redemptive plans in response to the faithful, fervent prayers of God's redeemed people. God uses our prayer to accomplish His will. Alright, so today I want to talk to you about prayer. But I don't want to just talk about prayer in general. I'm going to talk with you this morning about a certain kind of prayer that perhaps you've never heard put this quite the same way. I want to talk about kingdom-focused prayer. Kingdom-focused prayer. Earlier in our worship service, we prayed the Lord's Prayer. When Gary led us in prayer, we prayed that wonderful prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What does that mean? It means, God, would you make your name glorious? Would you you cause more and more people to bow in love and adoration at your name? And then, thy kingdom comes. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Think about that word kingdom for a few minutes. What does it mean? Usually, when we hear the word kingdom, uh, we think of a place, we think of a realm. Like we might think of the kingdom of Kuwait or the United Kingdom, something like that. Those are places, those are areas, that's real estate. But in the Bible, when we speak of the kingdom of God, we're not talking about a place. We're talking about a condition or a state of affairs. We're talking about the reign of God, R-E-I-G-N, or the rule of God. When you see that in the Scriptures, it's often the rule of God, or maybe a better word is the kingship of God. The fact that God is ruling. It is. Here's a good definition that's on the screen. The kingdom of God is God's progressive victory over satanic dominion in order to rescue people of all nations from the power of darkness and ultimately to right all wrongs and to undo the curse of sin and death. God is in the business of progressively exerting his kingly reign over the world, over the hearts of all people. So that ultimately one day he will right all wrongs and undo the curse that we have upon uh, the world because of our sin. Here's a diagram that many of you have seen before. We've shown it here at UPC often. It's a diagram that shows that what God is doing right now is ruling in the present age. You notice that bottom line, that's where we are right now, the, the present age. And something Amazing happened about 2,000 years ago, and that is that Jesus Christ came to this earth. Jesus' first coming inaugurated the kingdom of God. He says in Luke 8 1 that Jesus went through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. When Jesus began his ministry, what did he say? He said, The time was fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. And so repent and believe the good news. So Jesus at his first coming inaugurated the kingdom of God. But then at his second coming, that kingdom is going to be fully realized. Right now, the point is that you and I are living inside that box. That I'm calling the already and the not yet. We're stuck in the in-between time. Between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus actually do when He came the first time? He definitively broke the grip that Satan and sin and death had on the human race. We see that in His life, His teachings, His miracles, His death on the cross, His resurrection from the tomb. That, that, that was like the nail in the coffin to Satan. And then when He ascended into heaven, He's reigning on high right now over all things, ruling and governing all of this universe. But we don't see it fully realized. Do we? we see a lot of pain. We're living in that box where there is sin and crime and hate and uh, drug addiction and terrorism, roadside bombings, all the other stuff that we read about in the news every day. All of that stuff is inside that box because Jesus Christ's ultimate rule has yet to be realized. It's sort of like what you read in the Chronicles of Narnia. Many of you know and love the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. You know about that, right? You remember that the whole world was under the rule of who? The white witch. The white witch. And ever since the fall of Adam, it had always been winter and never Christmas. But the good news of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe is that Aslan has arrived. He has come. He's on the move. The sun is is rising in Narnia. The snow is melting and beginning to turn to slush. The crocuses are beginning to pop up out of the snow and bloom. The statues are coming to life. And one day it will be Christmas again. But it's not Christmas yet. No, see, that's the caveat. The kingdom has not yet arrived in its fullness. We're living between the first and second comings of Jesus in this already not yet period Satan is defeated but he is not yet destroyed that's why we still have these problems around us but Jesus Christ has come he is the king he has begun to right all wrongs he has begun to reverse the curse that was placed upon the world can you believe it that in just a few weeks we're going to be singing christmas carols it's amazing one of them is joy to the world my favorite verse in that says he comes Jesus comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. That's what He did when He first came. He began to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. He has The book of Mark chapter 3 says that Jesus tied up the strong man. That's another way of talking about Satan. He tied up or bound Satan. He defeated him at the cross. He conquered death at the empty tomb. And He began to make everything sad become untrue. You've probably heard, this is a very common way of putting it, that we've experienced D-Day, we just haven't yet experienced V-E-Day. Jesus hasn't yet mopped up. He hasn't done the ultimate act of making all things new. He says in Matthew 24 that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That's V-E-Day. That's when Jesus will return. That's when He will judge all His and our enemies and establish peace and righteousness upon the new earth and invite us to be a part of that with Him. So, if that's what we mean when we say kingdom, what is kingdom-focused prayer? Kingdom-focused prayer is asking God to advance His reign and glorify His name during this rectangle time, during this in-between time. It is asking God to break the stranglehold that evil has upon specific people and places and structures. It is asking Jesus to do what He came to do. What did He say He came to do? He put it this way, to bring good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, Sight to the blind and freedom for the oppressed. And so kingdom-focused prayer is saying, Jesus, do what you came to do. Do it here. Do it in Orlando. Do it in our country. Do it in the unreached people groups of the world. Kingdom-focused prayer is asking God for big things. It is asking God, for example, to do a work among our high school students. Do you know that they're going on retreat next weekend? So kingdom-focused prayer is saying, God... Thank you for our students. May their hearts be changed as a result of this retreat this coming weekend. It's asking God to pour out His Spirit on Summit Church. They're our church of the week. You know, the kingdom of God is not just restricted to UPC. It exists wherever there are godly, good, Bible-believing, gospel-centered churches like Summit Church. So God, would you pour your Spirit out upon our church of the week this week? It is asking God to send laborers into the harvest field of the lot people of Bhutan that Gary prayed with us for. It is praying the prayer of Isaiah, the prophet in Isaiah 64. Lord, rend the heavens and come down. It is praying the prayer of Moses in Exodus 33. Lord, show me your glory. Show us your glory. That's asking God for big things. Now look, I'm not saying that it's wrong or sinful or inferior to ask God for little things. To pray about your personal needs, you're commanded to do that. We should pray about everything, big or small. After all, even in the Lord's Prayer, what do we pray? Give us this day our daily bread. Just Lord, take care of me, take care of our our needs. Forgive us our sins as we forgive others. God loves all kinds of prayer. He loves to answer all kinds of needs and requests. So pray for the friend who needs a job. Pray for the lady down the street who's lonely. Pray for the dad who's having surgery and all of those other things that we need to pray for. God wants us to cast all of our cares upon Him. But friends, if that's all you pray for, if only personal needs come up in your prayer life, you're missing out on one of the greatest privileges you have as a child of God, which is coming alongside God and partnering with Him in His redemptive program in this world. You're missing out on joining God in His work. And that's what we want for all of us at UPC. So let me say it again before we go into the text. God moves His kingdom purposes forward in response to the faithful, fervent prayers of His redeemed people. So now we are ready, I think, to take a closer look at Acts chapter 4 and see what we can learn about kingdom-focused prayers. Uh, I want to give you six things about kingdom-focused prayer that we learned from Acts chapter 4. So I want to speak quickly, but I want you to take this in. So if you've closed your Bible, open it back up and look at Acts 4. And let me give you the first of the six things that we learn about kingdom-focused prayer. First, it's worshipful prayer. Kingdom-focused prayer is worshipful prayer. It appeals to the character of God. Notice that in verse 24. Here is this group of people. They have just welcomed uh, Peter and John back from their inquisition. And they begin to pray. What's the first thing out of their mouth? Verse 24. Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, they give glory to God. They worship God for His sovereignty. Sovereign means all-powerful, in control, Almighty, superior to all others, supreme. That's what Almighty. That's what sovereign means. It means that He He is so in control that God foreordains everything that comes to pass. God has a plan for everything. He's already worked it all out so that God is sovereign over even the little events that take place in our world. You notice that in verse 28 also. In verse 28, they say, they allude to God's predestination work. They say, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, I find this interesting, don't you, that here is a group of people who believe in predestination. But here is a group of people Who are earnestly praying. How do you put those two things together? How do you believe in a sovereign God who's foreordained everything that comes to pass and yet you also will commit yourself to prayer? You do it because you understand that God ordains not only the ends but the means. You do it because you understand that your prayers are an important piece of the way God works. God works through His people. He works through the words and the deeds, the proclamation, the demonstration, and the prayers of His redeemed people. So if you think that predestination and human responsibility are contradictory, that is not true. They fit together like a hand in a glove. Your prayers are a means God uses to bring His purposes to reality. You see this again and again in the Bible. Let me just give you one brief example. Philippians 1.19. Philippians 1.19. Paul is in prison. And yet he writes this to his Philippian friends. He says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance. Notice what Paul is into, What he realizes is that the prayers of his Philippian friends are a part of the way God is going to be at work in his life. So, kingdom-focused prayer is worshipful because it gives glory to God and realizes His supremacy, His sovereignty, His power, His omnipotence, and it worships Him for that. Secondly, kingdom-focused prayer is biblical. It's biblical. That is, it's saturated with the very words of Scripture. Scripture. Notice that phrase in verse 24 that I read a few moments ago. Verse 24, they say, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. Do you know where they got those words? Exodus 20, 11 says, In six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them virtually the exact same words that they use in their prayer. Or they might have gotten it from Nehemiah 9, verse 6. that says, You are the Lord. You have made heaven, the earth, and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. Or they might have gotten it from Psalm 146, verse 6. that says, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. What does this indicate? I think it indicates that the people of God here had been so steeped in the whole, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, that when they prayed, the Scriptures came out. And the takeaway there is that when in doubt, open up your Bible and use it for prayer. Did you also notice, of course, that the people in Acts 4 quote Psalm 2? It's there in... Verse 25 and 26. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They used Psalm 2 to pray to God. So many times when I'm struggling to know what to say to God in prayer, I will open my Bible to the book of Psalms. After all, it's the prayer book of the church. It's the hymn book of the church. And you can use a psalm to just turn it into prayer before the Lord. That will help you have kingdom-focused prayer scripture. Number three, it's desperate prayer. Kingdom-focused prayer is desperate. When I read the book of Acts, I find it very easy to idealize these people. Um, I mean that it's easy to read these verses as though these people that we're talking about were super-Christians. They were like cardboard people, not real people, not people who argue with their spouse, not people who have unruly kids, you know, not people who get colds and runny noses. They weren't people who worry about where the money's going to come from tomorrow. That's how we often treat the people of the Bible. But the truth is they were normal, ordinary Joes, just like you and just like me. And yet, these people knew firsthand that they were charged by God to go out and be witnesses and make disciples of all nations. Ringing in their ears are the final words that Jesus spoke to them before He went to heaven. You will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth? What? Give me a break? These are not super Christians. They're normal people just like us, and yet God has given them the task To reach the end of the earth? So what does this do to them but make them feel weak and helpless? And that's exactly how we need to feel. Weak and helpless compared to what we are called to do. As Michael pointed out, Matt has just finished taking us through a study of our 2020 vision. Transformation, proclamation, demonstration, multiplication, that's way, way beyond our pay grade. But that's good because when you are weak, you are strong. It's when you know that you're weak, that you'll feel desperate. And you'll take your desperation to the throne of grace. Fourth thing about kingdom-focused prayer is that it's specific. It's specific prayer. Look at verse 29. Verse 29 says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats, speaking of the religious leaders look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. In other words, what I hear the people praying here is Jesus, we need you to do two things. We need you to make us people of gospel proclamation and gospel demonstration. Jesus, we need you to give us power to speak the gospel in words and show the gospel by our deeds of love and mercy. Now, that's specific prayer. And that's kingdom-focused prayer. They're praying, do it, Lord, do it. Give us these specific blessings. Okay, number five. Kingdom-focused prayer is disruptive prayer. It disrupts the status quo. It does not accept the way things are. Um, It's disruptive. Notice what these Christians did not pray for. I think that's as important to realize as what they did pray for. They did not ask God to deliver them from trouble. Right? They did not ask God to give them relief from the religious establishment of the day. They didn't pray for the defeat of their enemies. They didn't pray for their own safety. Instead, the Christians in Acts 4 prayed for courage courage to keep on preaching the gospel and for the hand of God to intervene in a dramatic and intrusive way. Verse 29 says, Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Verse 30, Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders. Basically, the people of God were asking God for trouble. They were asking God to get them in trouble. But they were willing to be beaten and thrown in prison and persecuted for the name of Jesus because they cared deeply about the glory of God. And God answered their prayer. In verse 31, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That's exactly what they prayed for. God give us the courage to speak the word of God with boldness. That's exactly what happened. They spoke the word of God with boldness. They got in trouble. See, kingdom-focused prayer is rebellion against the status quo. It is prayer... That is moved emotionally at a gut level by the unrighteousness and the unbelief that you see around you. And what you do is, because you are moved by it, because you are angered by it, you invite God into the fray. You say, God, we need you in the fray. We need you in the fight. This is unacceptable to us, God. We ask you to, to shake the status quo. I read recently something that David Wells wrote. He's a professor at Gordon Conwell Seminary. And he says this. I think this is really good. We too easily accept the unjust and fallen world around us. It is not that we are unaware of what's happening, but simply that we feel completely powerless to change anything. Have you ever felt that way? After watching the news, do you just say, there's nothing that can change? who, Who am I? Nothing can ever change. And he goes on to say that that sense of impotence leads us, however unwillingly, to strike a truce with what is wrong. In other words, we have lost our anger, both as witnesses in society as well as before God, in prayer. That struck me when he said, we have lost our anger. So I ask you, what is it that makes you angry? Righteously angry, of course, is what I'm talking about. What is it that makes you righteously angry? Is it the fact that there are still these 7,000 unreached people groups in the world that have yet to know the name of Jesus, have yet to read a Bible, have yet to have a church? Over 3 billion people still in the grip of the devil? Does that make you a bit angry? It should. Or is it the fact that this week over 22,000 unborn babies will be aborted in our country? 3,100 a day. Does that make you a bit angry? Or is it the damage that prostitution and pornography and sex trafficking is doing to people these days? It should make us very angry. Maybe watching the news makes you angry. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Take your anger to God in prayer. Maybe a good discipline for, well, I'll just speak to myself. I am a news junkie. Maybe what I should do is, after the news is over, I take it to the Lord in prayer. Whatever it is that makes you righteously moved at the unbelief and unrighteousness around you, take it to God in prayer. Don't be smug. Don't be complacent. Don't be content with those things. Listen to Psalm 80. You know what this man prayed? He said, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. See what he was feeling in his heart? His rebellion against the status quo. God, I need you to come into the fray. Sixth and finally... Kingdom-focused prayer is united. United. It's the united prayer of the church. Lest we uh, omit the obvious, it says in verse 24 that they, speaking of these Christians, lifted their voices together to God. See, there's something about God's people getting together to pray. There's something about God's people coming together in united, humble, earnest, dependent prayer. What if, what if here at UPC, every one of our life groups spent a little bit of their time together at their weekly meeting doing some kingdom-centered prayer? Praying, Father, may your name be hallowed, may your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What if throughout the week, every family represented at UPC were to remember to pray for the church of the week, the unreached people group of the week, and the missionaries of the week. So this week, we're praying for Robert and Lisa and their kids. We're praying for Summit. We're praying for the Lot people of Bhutan. What if that were happening in our homes? Think of what would happen. What if our elders and deacons got together from time to time to do nothing but... Pray. What might happen if those things would take place? Maybe our church would be shaken by the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe we would be enabled by God for gospel transformation, proclamation, demonstration, and multiplication. Well, let me leave you with a bit of encouragement. A little story, perhaps, at the end. Uh, I grew up in a small town in South Carolina, and my father owned and managed the town's 1 a.m. radio station. And when I was a kid, nothing brought me greater pleasure than walking into the radio station that my dad owned and walking over to the control room. Now, I don't know if that term still applies today, but back then, the control room was where the DJ was. And this was the 60s, man. DJs were everything. And so nothing brought me greater joy than walking into the control room. Even when the sign said on the air, I was my dad's kid. I could go anywhere I wanted to. And so I walked through the door of the control room and sat down right next to the DJ. And sometimes he would let me put the record on the turntable. And sometimes he would let me push the buttons that would create the broadcast. Sometimes I could put the tape in the cartridge. I was so thrilled. At being in the control room. That's like what it is to pray. You're a kid of the Father. If you believe in Jesus who died on the cross to bring you into a relationship with God, you're a child of the Father. You can go anywhere you want to with God. You walk right into the control room and sit down with Him and partner with Him as He says to you, push the buttons. Push the buttons, Joe. Push the buttons, Jane, Mary, Jim, Bill. Pray. Pray a worshipful prayer. Talk to me about your anger. Uh, Use scripture if you can. Um, Speak to me with other people. Be specific. Admit your weakness. And see what I'll do in response to your prayers. Let's pray right now. Our Father, thank you so much for the gift of prayer. Thank you that you have given us this amazing privilege of being your children. Thank you that you listen to us when we pray, whether it be for small things or big. And yet today we've been challenged. Challenged to think bigger, to think in terms of unreached people, to think in terms of the evils and injustices of our world. I ask, Lord, that you will work in me and make me to be a man of kingdom-focused prayer. I pray that for my friends here at UPC. I pray for us corporately that we will... Understand this wonderful tool, as Michael said earlier, of prayer and take it often into the control room before your throne to lay our needs and our cares and our desires before your throne. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.